Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land on which the House of Sin and Studio stand, the Varangiri people of the Kulin nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands, our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no and I've stuck to it. The English fought a civil war over this over this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children, your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what it was right. Represent. 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 You're listening to Represent. Welcome to Represent on Sin Nation. We are Sin's media's flagship political discussion program, where we explore current affairs and politics in every sense of the word. You are listening to Oscar, Jana, Ashmal and Katie. We'd also like to acknowledge and celebrate that yesterday was International Women's Day. Coming up in the next hour, we have, um, and we're going to discuss, the topic of the Julian Burnside to run in Kuyong, the Hanoi Summit, the tense political situation between Pakistan and India, and also looking at the Prime Minister's comments on International Women's Day. Um, up next, we have um, the song... Missing Me by Angie McMahon. Eminent Melbourne QC has announced, sorry, Julian Burnside has announced that he's going to run in Kuyong against the incumbent Liberal MP Josh Frydenberg. Josh Frydenberg is also the deputy leader of the Liberal Party and the Australian Treasurer under Scott Morrison, who has held the seat of Kuyong since 2010. Julian Burnside is a barrister whose passionate advocacy for refugees and human rights has made him somewhat of a celebrity amongst progressives and has now, um, and he has now broken a long-standing promise not to enter politics um, by following what journalist Kishore Napier Raman at Crikey called the opening of the floodgates by independent Karen Phelps in Wentworth in November last year. Uh, now we're going to play a clip of Julian Burnside announcing his plans to run and his thoughts on the two major parties. And this clip is from the ABC. I mean, look, politics is broken in this country. Uh, the major parties are both, I think, ineffective. The Greens used to be regarded just as a party of environmentalists. I remember them when they set up in the early 90s, but they've matured. And I have checked their policies and all of their policies are consistent with my view of things. But you haven't been a member for I more than a week. I haven't been a member, no. So this is a change of heart? Yes. So the immediate reaction from Liberal headquarters has been great. The protest, the anti-Josh, the anti-Liberal vote is now split between you and Oliver Yates. Is this an astute move or a mistake? Um, to be candid, I decided to stand without any knowledge of Oliver Yates or any consideration of it, but the preference system... I think, does not lead to that result. The preference system means that, I mean, if a bunch of people who would have voted Liberal vote for Oliver Yates, and if a bunch of people who would have voted Liberal or Labor decide to vote for me, then that reduces the primary vote of Josh Reitenberg. 
down to what level do you think it is? They claim that their primary vote is still comfortable, even if you extrapolate the state election results and overlay them onto Kuyong, they still think that you've not got Snowball's chance in hell. Uh, well, I, I don't know. They're, they're, they're more expert than I am on things like that. But I, I think it's worth giving it a good belt. So that was Julian Burnside talking to the ABC about his plans to run. Um, interesting there also he was talking about Oliver Yates, who was a former Liberal Party member and son of a long-standing Liberal MP, William Yates, who late last year committed to running as an independent against Josh Frydenberg in Kuyong. Now, the seat of Kuyong is one that has existed since Federation and it has always been held by the Liberal Party. And actually, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies, held the seat of Kuyong for 32 years. So I'm interested to know what you guys think. Firstly, why do you think Julian Burnside has chosen to run as a member of the Greens and not as an independent? Um, yeah, bearing in mind that Oliver Yates is already running as an independent in Kuyong. I think uh, Burnside choosing to run independent is mainly in regards to his policies and views on refugees and their human rights and those related uh, areas. But I don't know if that's his best strategy of winning the seat at Koyong. Yeah, especially since the um, Greens haven't done so well in uh, previous uh, state elections um, in Victoria and Tasmania. And also considering the fact that that seat has been held by the Liberal Party for a really long time, isn't that right? Yes, yeah. um, since I think it's been held by the Liberal Party the whole time. And it's interesting to me that he's chosen to run as a member of the Greens. So in that clip you heard him say, or the journalist asked him, did you just join the Greens party as a member a week ago? And he said yes. So it's obviously a big change of heart for him entering politics. But I'm... I don't, it will be interesting to see what kind of chance he has because you think of someone like Karen Phelps, who was mentioned in the Crikey article um, in Wentworth, and then you think of uh, Zali Stegall, who's running in Warringah against Tony Abbott as an independent. And obviously they are um, both women, um, and Julian Burnside as well, believe in um, more compassionate, humane refugee policy and also um, more urgent action on climate change. But I think that Zali Stigal and Karen Phelps have both been called kind of um, liberal light, so they are still kind of moderate conservative, whereas the Greens are not that at all, obviously. On, they're not seen like that by many people, especially the residents of Kuyong, which is traditionally quite um, an upper-middle-class erring on the side of conservative policy. Yeah, it's interesting to think why he had that change of heart. Like, it might just be a reflection of the current political climate in Australia at the moment and whether this is some sort of, you know, retaliation to what's going on at the moment. Um, what do you guys think? I mean, a lot of the independents that, you know, have seen sp springing up are, most, are mostly, like, you know, they, ha they hold the same economic policies. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, hence liberal light, but they are, you know, tend to be more progressive socially That's correct, yeah. um, and I think I don't know maybe he's done this as a way to kind of disassociate from that label but I, I think that is an interesting area in Australian politics especially maybe because 
the parties are getting so entrenched in their economic views that when you have one disagreement in a human rights view in this instance refugees you have to jump to the greens and because i feel like julian burnside is a distinguished criminal a commercial lawyer he's represented major commercial firms in australia major commercial entities and he seems to have economic policies that are very strongly liberal the protecting of a free market capitalist in its inherent sense however because he has this one view which is you know protecting refugees he has to be a greens member because i don't think that policy would sustain itself in the liberal party yeah especially no. at the moment yeah and well like he said in the speech he said he's checked all of the greens policies and they all align with his own beliefs so i think perhaps now it's going beyond just his public platform for refugee advocacy and it might uh i think he is probably considering policies to do with social welfare in general and of course um urgent action on climate change yeah. um do you guys think that he has a chance to win that journalist didn't seem to think so on the abc but what do you guys think i don't think he will win but i don't think he will be popular among the greens voters either and that's mainly because around 6 years ago he was he was involved in a very controversial uh tweets or series of posts where he posted support for a ho- anti-homosexual cleric a muslim c- cleric who posted inflammatory uh homophobic remarks he retweeted or reposted it that was very controversial i think that's something in his past that is going to come back especially now that he's a member of the greens and he just recently or yes on march 9th which is today or today. yes today he <laughs> quit a gentlemen's only club that he has been member of for 40 years and it only came to light after politic the spotlight was shown on it and then he's quit following so and i think i i don't know if uh, you know a distinguished commercial lawyer with these uh, blights in his past is going to do well in the greens party let even more winning the seat in kuyong Yeah, um, I tend to agree with you Ashma on everything you said there. Oscar. I think it also will come down to uh with um Oliver Yates and uh him uh because obviously wh- whoever gets the most well primary votes at the end uh is most likely to inherit the others. Yeah, uh, you're right. Votes um preference votes and so I think you know, I don't think he has a great chance especially because especially because a lot of people in the green space you know probably won't be a fan of him to be able to you know not get his votes redistributed in a, a manner that will allow him to well come s- at least come second yes i agree and also i think that just in general i feel like the electorate of kuyong is not very likely to vote for a greens candidate even if they agree with many of his policies so i I personally feel like the mem- the people who live in Kuyong are more likely if they're fed up with the Liberal Party if they're sick of the Liberal Party like people were in Wentworth like people are looking to be in Warringah I think they're more likely to still vote for an independent candidate possibly like Oliver Yates than bring themselves to vote for the Greens. guys agree? <laughs> oh, definitely. Um I think yeah, it will be interesting to see um what type of loyalty this area has, the Kuyong area has towards the Liberal Party and whether they're willing to stick um with um yeah, the Liberal Party during this time. Yeah, I think the most he's probably going to be able to do is get more votes for, you know, 
anyone other than Josh Frydenberg. Yeah, I agree with you. But still, I think that it will be a very interesting campaign to follow. Yeah. And then, like we saw um, in the state election, I guess you never know because people said that Hawthorne, uh, which is within the Kuyong federal electorate, would never go to Labour. And, you know, it did to a guy who lives in a retirement village. So (laughs) I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, That's probably all we have time for on that. Coming up next, uh, we'll be talking about the political situation between Pakistan and India. So stay tuned. This is Heart of Yours by Leopard Lake. You're listening to... That was Heart of Yours by Leopard Lake. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation with Ashmal, Oscar, Jana and Katie. We will now talk about the tense political situation that happened last week and has fallen into this week by Pakistan and India. In last week, early last week, Pakistan were woken up to bombing in their territory by Indian fighter jets. Indian fighter jets uh, bombed a Pakistan, anti-Indian Pakistani militant camp. And the next day, to the surprise of many, Pakistan bombed back an uh, Indian territory where they stated that they they knew it was Indian fighter jets. They thought they stated that. It wasn't. They thought Indian militants were attacking them and attacked back. And then a dogfight happened, and Pakistan shot down two Indian fighter jets. One is presumed to be dead. The other was taken prisoner. And a couple of days later, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan released the Indian uh, jailed Indian fighter. And now the world watches as the situation is de-escalating. But once again, it looks like. Pakistan and India on the brink of war. Um, do you know what prompted the Indian Air Force fighter jets to first be sent and to Pakistan? Um, so there was a, pa- a Pakistan militant uh, group who were anti-Indian went and did a suicide bombing in near an Indian uh, outpost. So it's like to a terrorist group, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it is very similar. And this entire confrontation harks back to... Pakistan and India trying to uh, put their sovereignty over the state of Kashmir. Yeah. And this militant group wants is in pro-Pakistani Kashmir. Mm. So you don't see this as an act of India going in and trying to, um, to be sort of human rights ab- advocates because they're trying to, you know, dissolve this terrorist group? Or you just see this as um, a self-really um, progressing act because they want Kashmir to themselves. I think this was India retaliating to an attack on its own sovereignty. But I think this attack, this there was supposed to be a restrained uh, response agreement between Pakistan and India, where they realized that both states have extremist or militant members, and that if they are attacked by these extremists, outlier members that they will be restrained in the action but the first time in decades India retaliated directly so uh, since the 90s there's been a kind of truce between the actual militaries of the states all uh, war has all bat wars or gunfire gunfights have been between one state's military against others militant groups so this has been the first time both militaries have actually attacked each other mm. and so I think that brings into question if two nuclear states with uh if these two nuclear states could ever resolve such a situation yeah so um do you mean the situation of kashmir or how 
I think all the tension comes from the state of Kashmir. It might be widespread because of other s- reasons, and it is one being how Pakistan became a state itself, you know, separating from India during India's independence from the British Empire. But I think currently Kashmir is the biggest provoke hot topic for these two states. And um, what does the region of Kashmir want to do about this issue? They have well. Their citizens are split over. Pa- if they're Pakistani Kashmir, they want to go to Pakistan. If they're Indian Kashmir, they want to go to India. And they're currently an Indian state. But the major issue is that they have agreed to a referendum, and this was over a decade ago. But however, both states have to remove all military from the states to con- conduct the referendum under the United Nations. However, both states have not gone through the action of removing military. Um. There's been some, there's been some uh, standoffs in the past, um, like there was one in two thousand and one or two thousand and two over the parliamentary attack. Uh, do you think this is similar? There could be similar results here, or. I think with Imran Khan becoming the prime minister of Pakistan, and he's very dialogue oriented approach, which didn't speak through when they bombed down a fighter jet, but him releasing. Uh, the fighter jet the one of the fighter jet uh, pilots immediately seems to be that they are open to dialogue and pa- Imran Khan o- did want to communicate with the Indian prime minister but India said that they will not communicate with Pakistan at this time and i think it's a interesting approach where because for the last decade two decades Pakistan has been the more military oriented state who is not willing to pay- play ball with India and Pakistan have been more leaning towards uh siding with you know the arab states with the middle east with the anti us approach while receiving us military funds and india has been the we will be open to dialogue state but with india's current prime minister they seem to be taking a very aggressive and dogmatic approach to south asia they want to assert that they are the top dog and they're now not willing to take talk to pakistan and their the uh, prime minister stated that they are very uh, that they are moving towards the russia friendly approach seems like this to and fro between the two um states has resolved in there not being any resolution in kashmir because if india is taking such a dogmatic approach and you know pakistan is interested in having some sort of conversation with them there's still not going to be any um resolution in that area because nobody's going to um be willing to retract their military from that area and even if they're willing to have that conversation or pakistan is willing to have that conversation with india i just still think that it comes down to this issue of um mutually assured destruction and um that both states are just too too scared to relinquish any power in that region just because they are scared about what the potential would be if someone was not aligning to the other person's requests or state's requests. I think with Pakistan India's main hesitance comes from Pakistan being a state which has always been a bit aggressive but also because in India they call Imran Khan Taliban Khan because he has always been a bit lenient towards the Taliban and so they are hesitant that opening dialogue means they're not not only do opening dialogue with the prime minister of Pakistan they're opening dialogue with the Taliban and Islamic militant groups so it's really i feel like it's a multifaceted issue and also it's it might be just a proxy war between the US and Russia once again with the Pakistan being very 
US sided these past few years and India slowly leaning towards Russia and you know starting these strate- strategic partnerships and these trade deals with Russia so yeah that's an interesting thing to consider especially when you think about Imran Khan I mean he's kind of like a bit of a star with his cricketing career and everything I think he's uh, quite a popular figure on the world stage generally whereas I feel like M- Modi is seen as being more of a conservative and I think that Imran Khan has perhaps a higher standing or more of a global platform um, for Pakistan as its leader than India does now. Mm. It's interesting too to think that perhaps Pakistan is taking this lax or more lax approach and it could just be a little bit of a play. You never know because especially as you're saying they have these militant groups that are obviously well and alive within Pakistan. I mean that is very confrontational in it in and itself. Um, have to go up against that. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Oh, uh, sorry. Oscar, did you want to add oh. something? Oh, no, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we will go to... Oh, this song has a language warning. This is North North by Vince Staples. You're listening to Represent on Sin, Sin Nation. That was North North by Vince Staples. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Uh, so... Two weeks ago, saw the Hanoi summit between um, the U.S. and North Korea kind of break down. Um, uh, of after, well, apparently uh, the uh, you, the North Korea had s- sought uh, uh, widespread sanction relief for only partial nuclear demo- uh, partial nuclear demobilization, and apparently that wasn't. Um, well, and that wasn't uh, acceptable to uh, U.S. officials. Um, and so it's also been interesting because uh, after this, uh, it seems as if um, there's been satellite imagery that's found that North Korea has begun to rebuild a long-range missiles, missile site uh, after, um, obviously, the summit's collapse. So what do we all think the effect of this will be on the... Uh, obviously, the effort that the Trump administration has put into uh, kind of bring North Korea in uh, into um, the wider international community. I definitely think that this makes a bit of a mockery of the US that they're only willing to compromise on partial denuclearization. It just seems like they're yeah, it's a bit. Well, Trump claimed that. Um, no agreement was reached, and so basically, as we know, the summit was a failure. But yeah. Trump claimed that they only couldn't reach an agreement because North Korea wanted uh, an end to all sanctions placed on them by the United Nations. I think there are five, um, except the North Korean foreign minister, his name is uh, Ri Yong-ho, uh, told um, the media and told the world that North Korea was only seeking a partial lifting. So. Mm. Trump has given his reasons for why the summit wasn't a success and then North Korea has refuted this. So I don't really see um, it having a positive impact on the relationship between the two countries. Do you think that Trump only said that, um, you know, the only reason they didn't reach an agreement, sort of exactly what you just said before, um, was just to cover his own sort of behind in that situation? Yes, probably because uh, the CNN has reported that even the North Korean media has admitted that the summit was a failure. Yeah. I my biggest issue when Trump opened dialogue 
with Kim Jong-un and I feel like it this issue has become exacerbated is that now he has given legitimacy and he's recognized Kim Jong-un as this world leader and now the even the communications have broken down this legitimacy hasn't and Kim Jong-un has this excuse where we had the dialogue and the negotiations failed but there is no way for like the f- previously when the US presidents you know George Bush none of them directly talked to him because they didn't want to recognize him as a world leader that is equal to them but now he has been given this recognition and this option yeah and i guess now um they have the excuse to say well we tried we tried to make a compromise with the us but there was no compromise reached so how how do you go, like where do you go from here well i mean it's interesting because i think from what i saw both leaders kind of tr- took this optimistic standpoint and i think this also still comes from Trump kind of thinking as Kim Jong-un as a friend. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and if we go back to 2018, um, the last time they had a summit, um, I'll just find the quote. Um, so back in June last year, um, Donald Trump, after first meeting with Kim Jong-un, he came back and he, which I had forgotten about, he tweeted and his tweet was, quote, just landed a long trip, but everybody can feel can now feel much safer than the day I took office. Um, And that's what he tweeted as he arrived back in Washington. And then, quote, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. So that quote is from CNN politics. And so Donald Trump was saying, um, what is that, nine months ago now, almost nine months ago, that um, there was no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea and that everybody could sleep well tonight. When, you know, the fact that he's having another summit and that the sanctions haven't been able to be lifted just goes to show that that's not true. And also what you were talking about before with the satellite imagery, the New York Times um, reported in September last year that North Korea is making nuclear fuel and building weapons as actively as ever, but is just doing so quietly which has allowed Donald Trump to portray um, his supposed denuclearization effects as on track when, in fact, they probably have never been at all. I mean, it's interesting because also still uh, both sides uh, vowed to maintain uh, the moratorium on uh, missile launches and nuclear tests. Um, But this is also quite quite a big thing because um, Trump... um, kind of was is facing a lot of uh, domestic pressure in the US. Uh, obviously, around the time of the summit uh, was when Michael Cohen testified. And so I think Trump kind of had a lot riding on this summit that then didn't go so well. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, Trump has suggested that he deserves a Nobel Peace Prize for his diplomacy with North Korea. Um, and he's also said that Barack Obama was on the verge of going to war with North Korea um, and that Trump had kind of pulled the US back or prevented this terrible war between the two countries. Yeah, I mean, Obama certainly wasn't that interested in war with North Korea uh, because he thought that, you know, sanctions would kind of force it in to... uh, uh, would force it to give in to the international community... But um, it's also worth noting that, you know, there has been other attempts by you know, Bill Clinton in the past to make peace with uh, North Korea. Obviously, none of them have gotten as far as this, and they, and they, also, and they all failed. Um, 
but you know it's been done before. Um, mm. But what do you think the effects domestically uh, this will have on uh, Donald Trump? Domestically, well, I just kind of think that um, the people who believe in him, I don't think that this will stop them from believing in him. But then those who um, don't believe in Donald Trump's views or and oppose him and those who... Um, don't support him or his party politically, I think that that will only worsen his reputation um, within the United States as a um, poor diplomat and a poor global leader. Mm. I think um, domestically this will just not have much effect whatsoever because the failure of this summit um, really is not going to change the situation much, I don't think, because people that are Trump supporters generally are you know, avid Trump supporters, and regardless of this not um, coming to a cease or there no, being no reconciliation in this situation, I just think that it's not going to turn Trump supporters away from supporting Trump. Especially because, I mean, something that happens um, internationally, it's easy for Trump then to go back to the United States, sorry, United States, and put his own kind of spin on things. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, I don't know, but I don't see this as likely to deter a large number of his supporters or sway them against him. What do you think, Oscar? Yeah, I think I think pretty much the same. You know, those who are voting him voting for him are still probably gonna still vote for him. Those who didn't vote for him are still probably not going to vote for him. Yeah. Um I mean for the three hundred million people who live in the United States, for many of them, uh, North Korea and even Hanoi and Vietnam seem very far away. I wonder if this is going to to actually have a domestic effect on the people that will not vote for Trump because do you think that some people may look at this action in the same light as he does, like rendering him to get a Nobel Peace Prize or put him in the running for that to actually see this as some sort of peaceful um, relationship that he's trying to um, conjure up with North Korea or do you guys not think that that's the case? Well, I think he suggested he should be eligible for the Nobel Peace Prize last year after an earlier summit. Yeah. So I think that, if anything, this will just worsen his chances, okay. if there were any to begin with. I mean, it's interesting because I was, like, there were a lot of Trump supporters that were calling for him to get a Nobel Peace Prize, you know, even, like, because, uh, I mean, this is last year when they held the initial summit, uh, there was kind of a bit of flip-flop, you know, it was initially on, then Trump cancelled Mm. Then it was back on. Then I th- didn't North Korea cancel at some point? Or I don't know. But there was one point where Trump cancelled it, and you know, but like before Trump had cancelled it, there were all these people calling uh, for. Uh, tr- there were these people in uh, Republican Congress, people in the Republican Congress, for him to get a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. And then a week later, he cancelled. I know. I think it was. Yeah, there was meant to be a meeting between um, Mike Pompeo, who's the U.S. Secretary of Secretary of State, and North Con- Korean officials late last year, and then that was cancelled due to disagreements, and then rescheduled, and then they finally decided on the February two thousand and nineteen summit. Um, that is all we'll have. T- time for uh we'll now play the opener by cape cope this is you're listening to represent on sydney nation a very fitting um song for the next topic that we're going to discuss today um so obviously as 
most of the nation is well aware, Friday the 8th of March um, marks International Women's Day. Um, This day is a day made to mark how far we have come and how far we still have to go to achieve gender equality. Nonetheless, Scott Morrison, our very own Prime Minister, has used today to defend the actions of men. Here's a clip from Scott Morrison's speech at the International Women's Day luncheon. Members of my cabinet, Kelly O'Dwyer, said at the press club last year, our Minister for Women, gender equality isn't about pitting girls against boys. See, we're not about setting Australians against each other, trying to push some down to lift others up. That's not in our values. That is an absolutely liberal value, that you don't push some people down to lift some people up. And that is true about gender equality too. We want to see women rise. But we don't want to see women rise um, only on the basis of others doing worse. We want everybody to do better and we want to see the, the rise of women in this country be accelerated to ensure that the overall pace is maintained. So Chelly said it isn't about pitting girls against boys or women against men. It's not about conflict, she said. It's about recognising that girls and women deserve an equal stake in our economy and our so society. This clip is and that's what we're achieving and that we still have a, a long way to go. To have a more prosperous country. So this clip has come from the SBS News Source, which is filmed, um, it was filmed at the International Women's Day Address in Perth for the International Women's Day Breakfast at the Chamber of Minerals and Energy in Western Australia. His reference to Kelly O'Dwyer's statement that girls doing well must mean that boys are doing worse and his own statements that he he wants to see women rise but not if it leaves men worse off are the exact statements which should not be emulated on International Women's Day. The issue is that International Women's Day is a day to celebrate women and to show that the perpetual movement to try and formulate a society that is trying to reach equality, not a society that is trying to make women um, at a heightened level or men at a heightened level of power. What society should be trying to achieve is simply equality for all, where regardless of your gender, your preference, your preference of food, who you listen to on the radio or what you're wearing, people are simply seen as people with the same rights and opportunities. This is not a balancing act, as Morrison claims, where people have to move up for others to move down in the world. We should all be aiming to lift each other up so we are a society that is, in the true sense of the word, progressive. It seems to me that um, this issue of gender equality is not just societal, but also an issue in the coalition government itself. The coalition government has a, ver- has a very low number of women in parliament, with only 19 seats out of 106 seats being held by women. The Labor Party has almost half of the seats held by women, which is a step in the right direction. However... These numbers astound me, as these are our nation's representatives, and with such a little amount of female influence, how can this be an accurate representation of today's society and a true voice of our nation? Nonetheless, Morrison denies that there is a gender problem at all within the government. So how does this all make everyone feel? I think it's interesting that... I mean, it's quite peculiar that Scott Morrison has kind of chosen this day to take, to take his like stance against affirmative action... You know, um, it is. I <laughs> I don't know why he him and his speechwriters have chosen to do that on that day of all days. I know yeah. I was thinking the same thing, and you know he's got the reputation for being the the PR guy, but 
but I yeah. don't think that that was a particularly good example of public relations, if you ask me. Um, I don't know. I think that that's surely they knew that that's going to be a controversial thing to say, especially on International Women's Day, when really most of the speeches, um, most of the action, it's a day to celebrate women. Yeah. And that's what that's what all the breakfasts are for. That's what all the lunches bef- are for on that top surface level, even setting aside the um, deep underlying movement for equality and feminist ideals. Even if you're at a conservative breakfast at the minerals and energy mining lunch, I still think that, yeah, I personally don't really know what they were thinking. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Katie. Um, even just... Regardless of the party alone, Scott Morrison is one husband. He's got two young children, which, might I add, are both women. I feel like alone in his own personal life, he should be thinking, I want to bring my children up in a society where, you know, on International Women's Day, we're going to be celebrating these incredible women that not only are in his own life, but, you know, are obviously out there in society and are in his own um, government. So, yeah, I totally agree and am enraged that he's taken this day to take another step back um, in society and in the government and to to not be recognising women for all the glory that they are. I think it also goes to show the lack of responsibility our Prime Minister has. His actions or his statements now have just, you know, given a platform for men who are against the movement or meninists and now they have someone they can quote the prime minister of our country in saying that women should not never not or ever succeed at the expense of men i wonder if there should be more responsibility placed on the prime minister once they had a certain position the leader of our country if they should stop focusing so much on party politics and also take regard to the fact that there are 20 million people in the state. I think if you ask me, Scott Morrison has taken that kind of classic stance, which is that, oh, feminism means uh, that girls will do well only at the expense of boys or women will do well only at the expense of men. And I mean, that's just fundamentally not what feminism is about. And feminism is about equality and it's about equal opportunity in society and it's about respect. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Katie. I just, I find it astounding that he... Obviously, he's taking the approach of thinking that feminism is that radical feminism where obviously there is that small portion of feminism that does um, inherently believe that women should be innately above males, but that is only a very small portion of feminists that believe that. I feel like there is a united front with many feminists that believe that feminism is an act of trying to just have equality amongst all beings, not just... You, you know, regardless of your sexuality, your gender, of anything, of just reaching equality and giving people equal chances. Yeah, I still think, you know, even if, you know, even if he you strongly disagrees, yeah. even if um, Scott Morrison strongly disagrees with the movement, which, I mean, from these statements, it seems like he clearly does, it's, it's, it's still not, I don't think it's okay for him to take International Women's Day as, you know, the opportunity to <laughs> attack uh this to 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 attack this uh, apparent fringe element of the feminist movement. Mm. 
Yeah, and he's standing there with his pink um, ribbon pinned yeah. to his, the lapel of his shirt talking about this. And it's actually interesting. I just saw that this morning um, an article has been posted up on The Guardian by Ben Doherty in Oxford. And um, Malcolm Turnbull is actually there at the moment. And he gave a speech um, at Oxford University. And um, so Turnbull has said... There is no question that the Liberal Party has a serious gender inequality issue and that to suggest otherwise is not credible. And so this is a quote from Malcolm Turnbull, um, as reported to The Guardian, and he said, um, the Liberal Party does have a women's problem in the sense that we do not have enough women in Parliament and it is one that the party is acutely aware of. So, I mean, um, and also the Liberal Party has got a target of 50% female representation by 2025, um, but has conceded that it is unlikely to reach that. And like you were saying before, Jana, um, its female representation at the moment is 23%. In this situation, I just think that him going out there and making these public statements of awareness is just not good enough. If he's out there making these public statements saying, we're aware that there is an obvious inherent gen- like lack of gender inequality in his government, well, let's see some action. Let's see him doing something about it. It just doesn't look like he's making any positive steps to try and change that. He's also saying, oh yeah, we're trying to make these goals of having a 50% gender equality in my um, government, but still, it's probably not going to happen. So it's just such a lack of accountability. I know. And also, like you said before, um, 19 seats out of 106 seats um, being held by women. That's actually um, the to- the total... Um, is 19 and then there are two national women but that's both of them are the lowest proportion of female representatives of any political party i i think it's also mainly a lack of knowledge or maybe idea of feminism but also of just the gender general idea the idea that how can women achieve equality if they can't compete with men like i feel like they want this idealistic world idea of feminism where a man in the liberal party is never going to be challenged but somehow miraculously a woman comes to that position like if a woman and a man are fighting out for the same position in an equal world the man is going to be challenged or placed in a pressured situation like there is unless like the idea that a male will never be challenged or at the expense of a woman will never will ensure that a woman will never actually achieve equality and it's also um, like we were talking about in the last episode of Represent, uh, the fact that Julie Bishop is going to retire at the next election and also Kelly O'Dwyer, who is the Minister for Women, um, and she holds the seat of Higgins, which is coincidentally the one next to Koo Yong. She's going to retire at this election as well. So a lot of the senior women and the women that have always kind of stood for feminism as much as they could within the Liberal Party are leaving. So I think that for Scott Morrison, A, to make that speech on International Women's Day of all days and then B, to not acknowledge that there is an issue of gender and an issue of representation in his party is um, quite foolish. Yeah, hopefully this will, not hopefully, but I definitely think this will have an impact on him in the next election and hopefully this will make him more accountable for things that he does and um, I guess that's the only thing that we can be hopeful of in this 
um, that hopefully he's learned from saying these sorts of things and it already looks like he's trying to backtrack from the statement that he's made today. Um, but yeah, just to all those listeners out there, I think that it is important to to recognise that International Women's Day should be about us trying to reach equality within our society and to also herald those women that have done so many great things for women um, instead of what Scott Morrison is emulating. And I think that's all we have time for. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Katie, Oscar, Jana, and Ashmal uh, with Represent. You can keep up to date and let us know what you, you thought of the show on our on our socials. Find us at SinRepresent on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to hear this episode again or catch up on any of our old episodes, you can find our podcast on Omni at Represent. And remember to, to stay, stay political. political.